Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. Nineteen eighty-four is considered the third massacre in Sikh history. It begs the question: Why was the Golden Temple in Akal Takhsahib attacked? What is its historical context, and why is the memory of the attack kept alive 36 years later? To answer these questions, the Sikh Research Institute's Senior Fellow of Research and Policy, Arinder Singh, spoke with a live audience on June 3rd. As a widely respected educator and thinker, he explores these issues in depth and how others like it impact Sikhi. As the co-founder of several acclaimed Sikh organizations, he seeks raising the global consciousness as a public speaker and author. He's regularly asked to consult on organizations' curriculums, exhibitions, and films. He is the presenter of this live recording you're about to hear, and he's joined by our webinar host, Menvinder Kaur. Thank you for joining us today, Hunder Singh. Um, in today's conversation, we would like to particularly engage with those who are born after 1984, those that were um, not witness to and do not have a living memory of these events, which would include individuals such as myself. Um, so perhaps those who see the hashtag and posts on social media that have been circulating this week, um, particularly the hashtag never forget 1984, um, but those that also want to know more. I know there are many young attendees uh, in our audience today from Khalsa schools all around North America joining us today. So I just wanted to uh, give them a warm welcome. It's particularly heartwarming to know that these young voices want to be a part of this conversation and we welcome them. So to begin our conversation, I'd like to start with a overarching um, question heard they're saying. So when we speak of these events, the what that occurred um, and the how it occurred, perhaps is something that is a little more tangible or accessible something that's Googleable. However, if we delve into the why, we get into the nuances of what was happening in 1984. So perhaps something that's not as easy to search. Um, so perhaps we can start at what did Punjab look like in 1984? What was it to be in Punjab in that moment? Yeah, that's a great question, you know, because we are living in a reality where in America at least, and the globe is watching what's happening in America right now. But it was very different in 1984. You know, you did not have the social medias at the time. The only uh, news channel was government-owned called Doordarshan. The radios were owned by the government of India. There were few newspaper correspondents who were from outside of India, but primarily the information flowed one way. And as you know today, what you are looking at, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, even with so much independent media, people still get some conflicted ideas on the data and the messages. So back then, in 1984, if you look at from January through May, and eventually what happened in June, the situation is this, that you don't have all these modes of communication. You have eventually government sealing the border of Punjab, which means the international border which touches on the Pakistan side, as well as all the national borders, which means touching Rajasthan, uh, parts of Haryana and Himachal. So when you seal a border, it means nobody's allowed entry inside or out, not just from Amritsar, 
but from all over Punjab. So the situation is that no one is allowed to enter or exit. There are no correspondents, even though few correspondents exist at the time in terms of independent media or international media. Very, very few. It was rare, in fact. Uh, even the newspapers at the time were considered, just like today in India primarily, they're party papers, which means uh, they write on behalf of the political parties of India. So you don't have social media. You only have eyewitnesses account. You have some photographic account. You have the lived memories. And you have one big white paper of the Indian government, which tells you the story. And this is where the situation is quite drastic in Punjab, that you don't have independent or social media or uh, other narratives other than the government's narrative, which is very important, by the way, as we enter this, because it's like watching only what a White House today says. If you only watch that, that <laughs> that's nowhere close to what the story is, right? As you all know. So that's what we see in 1984. It's going by, in fact, what the government of India says, and through it, what the army said, through it, what the radio said, through it, what the TV said, and through it, what the newspaper said. That's what was the situation of Punjab. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we could talk about um, pre-1984, what were Sikh relations to the Indian government? What was that relationship? Yeah, so, you know, this is one thing which has been uh, not addressed fully, I would say. Either we have addressed this generally when we talk about in post-84 scenario, mm -hmm. uh, e either only from us, you know, Khalistan movement, let me just bring it that out, or we do it from those who have only served the Indian government perspective. So what we really need to understand is even the ones who were serving within India, whether they were serving in the army or in the civil administrations or who were businessmen or who were IPS, IAS, IFS, which are basically foreign service and civil administrations, they all actually had something to say about it. And mm -hmm. what we do know is if we look at from 1947 to June 1984, there are at least three things we must understand. That in 1947, Sikhs decided to come with India and not work towards its independent country at the time. And there were certain promises. So there is a, a sort of a broken promises with the Sikhs by the national government of India, which was left by, uh, led by uh, the first prime minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru. Okay? So we have broken promises from 1947. And then you have statehood rights. This is where Punjab and Sikh come into play and get intermixed. So sometimes we say they're inseparable. Sometimes they say they're totally separate things. Well, it is not as black and white as that. What happens is the rest of India gets organized uh, by the languages and they get their statehoods, but the state of Punjab doesn't. So Sikhs champion Punjabiyat on the Indian side of Punjab so there is a 16, 17 years of movement just to get the Punjab organized and recognized, which gets truncated. And then you have discriminatory policies, whether it was entering the armed forces, whether it was setting up industries in Punjab, whether it was the religious rights of Punjab or aggregarian rights, uh, religious rights of the Sikhs or aggregarian politics. Now, aggregarian matters because remember, Sikhs were traditionally either in the army, armed forces, or they're the farmers. So when you have discrimination of water issues going on, discrimination in the entrances of army going on, 
discrimination against Sikh religious practices going on. They all sort of consolidated uh, to, in what happened in, in 1984. And I want to point out that's the first part. So the promises and then what happens between 47 to 70s. And then there's a big event in India in 70s, which was the emergency when the prime minister of India assumed dictatorial powers and six and mass reacted to it. It's like a civil disobedience movement, which India hadn't seen, but six had done it. India hadn't seen against a government to this level who was assuming dictatorial role. So I think all that culminated uh, into 1984. There is religious, political, social, and state-level discriminations, and those confrontations came head into play in June 84. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so perhaps here we have covered a little bit of the why. So now I feel like we are at June 1984 a little more tangibly. So perhaps we could talk about the events that actually occurred uh, in the first week of June? Yeah, I think we need to get maybe a little where you started, if you don't mind. I want to get a little bit into the why part of this more. So of the course. why is, you know, this is a question which we, as you articulated, we don't get into too much. Why would Indian government do this? Well, we have to understand that people like the history of between 47 and 84, we have to understand the relationship between somebody who had become an autocratic leader who's willing to pull out tanks, you know, just like President Trump has even invoked in this country. Just imagine that for a second, right? So why part here comes in? Because six, by their DNA is what I like to call it, by their design, we stand for certain liberties. We stand for people's rights. We stand for not just our rights, and we have been doing this for 550 years now. And by the time 1984 came, it was 500 years of every administration. So there's an incredible relationship Sikhs have had with every state, including Ranjit Singh when the Sikh ruler was there, including with the British, including with the Mughal. So with the India also, there's a similar relationship going on that we, we feed India, that's through Punjab's breadbasket. We serve India by serving in the wars, whether it is against Pakistan, whether it's against China, uh, we we did everything and we, we paved the independence of India and Pakistan with the Sikh blood, if you look at the numbers. So the why comes in when we object to the governments of the time. This is a very interesting relationship Sikhs have with every government, by the way, that we actually become the biggest allies with them for a time being when they're doing the right thing. When they're not doing the right thing, we are also the biggest champions of adversaries, which basically means we fight the empire. We become the rebellious kinds. So why comes in there? This is not just that India did this. This is not just the Mughals did it. This is not just the British did it. Sikhs served in the British army too. But when Jallianwala Bagh massacre happened, they went one way or the other. When certain things happened with Punjab, they went the other way. There were other kind of Sikhs who then decided to not work with the British and fight the British. So similar things are happening in this. Uh, in the scenario between 47 and 84, that six actually served India very well. Six don't hate India. If anything, they were creating a federal structure for India. The why part comes in because at, there comes a point where we say government is not doing the right thing. So when you do that and somebody is the autocratic leader, they have no tolerance for it. And that's why a genocidal campaign starts against six, whether it was in the 18th centuries or whether it was in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So perhaps like a more detailed question that I have um, is on this white paper that you have mentioned. So to quote a article that actually you wrote, um, it says on 10th July 1984, the government of India released white paper of Punjab agitation. Its preamble gives two grounds for the 1984 invasion. A the consequences of this determined assault on society cannot be measured simply in terms of the number of people killed and injured, and B, the whole thrust of extremist violence was to fragment the people of Punjab and destroy this common culture. So I know this comes uh, in July, but kind of juxtaposing it with June um, and this preamble of why, could you speak a little more to that? Sure. I think... Uh, the first answer to that in writing actually came from a rep citizen's report, which basically wrote very clearly, which was printed in September 1985. They basically said, you can either go by, and this is very important, and Sikhs need to understand, and this is where I will contextualize a Sikhi or a Gurmat angle to it. But first, by a report by Citizens Commission, they said, if you go use the term Operation Blue Star, you will follow the premise of uh, white paper of which government of India wrote. But they invoked, they said, but if you follow the term Kalugara, and this is the Sikh term, he says, if you follow that term, you will understand what the government is telling you is nothing but lies. This, these are not, I'm paraphrasing that, but this is not my conclusion. This was the Citizens Commission's conclusion in, in September of 1985. So what does that mean? Let me explain that a bit. Kalugara is a term it is an all-encompassing term. We must uh, own our terms because part of the battle has always been of the narratives. And part of our narrative is Kalukara involves people, what we now call pilgrims died in, uh, in the Darbar sub-complex. Well, it includes pilgrims. It includes workers who were there. You know, SGPC has workers. Akal Takht had its own employees or sevadars. Other Gurdwaras had other sevadars. So it includes people who are working there, people who are visiting there, people who are pilgrims there. It also includes people who fight back. So when Janelle Singh Pindranawale and 100 or so Sikhs who stayed back to defend their Barsab complex, it also includes them. This is an 18th century term. And we must understand within Sikh psyche, it is very important for us to protect an our Gurdwaras. We invoke this every day in Ardas. Jinnane de seva sambal kiti, right? So, so what does that mean? That people who are the who maintain the flags of Sikhi, people who fight the corruptions at the government centers or people who work with the government, uh, that Kalukara term means that there is an attack on the Sikh nation. Every Sikh, no Sikh is spared. And Kalukara means anyone who dies because of that attack, which was declared by the state or the empire of the time. So this is what that white paper is doing. And people who have studied white paper, not me, people stood in Indian parliament. The home minister at the time stood in the Indian parliament. He says, white, white paper is nothing but the white lies. Those are not our terms. So sick sentiment, obviously, and the sick memory and the survivor's memory will tell you much more. And we will get into that if there are questions on that. But even if you go by people who are serving in the Indian parliament at the time and what they are saying within a year of that report, they basically say this is a hogwash. There is nothing believable in this, whether it's Mr. Barar's book, the general who went inside, whether it is the white paper. I mean, uh, General Chaudhary even said at the time, 
that this was nothing but the manipulation by the masters in Delhi. So if we look at somewhat independent individuals who have studied the white paper, which is the official account of Indian government, it becomes very clear that nothing is believable in the white paper. Mm -hmm. So speaking to this understanding the narrative, um, and understanding perhaps a fuller story, something that I'm interested in and questions that I've had while thinking about 1984 is the role of Jarnail Singh which I know many I'm sure have questions about. So often when we speak of 1984, Jarnail Singh comes into the conversation. Um, understandings around who he was is are often polarized. So something that I've thought about is what role did he play in these events? Uh, kind of what you were speaking about in regards to words and like the the hold that words have so in his case perhaps it's labels and categories that he fits into which ones does he fit into which ones does he evade and what is perhaps this problem of putting a label on individuals right and, and remember who's putting this label and remember uh, the government of india at the time run by the congress party under the autocratic leadership of Indira Gandhi, they controlled every single piece of information. Now let's talk about from that angle, then I'll come to the sick angle. So because of the label, well, what's the label? Who created this label? You know, this label, these labels, as we know, even today, the, when the word terrorist is invoked, when the term fundamentalist is invoked, what do they really mean? You can see how they're being invoked today in various countries, depending on what narrative they want to generate. But let me first break this, uh, the, the image of Pindrawale as in the India today of the time, even the Tavleen Singhs who now have changed their opinions because of what they are facing in the different government who's doing the same things in India. But what were they saying at that time? They, they were saying exactly what the government narratives was. But I want to present what S.K. Sinha said, Lieutenant General S.K. Sinha, this is very important. Lieutenant General S.K. Sinha was asked 16 months in advance to plan an attack on the Sahib complex, which essentially, when we say Golden Temple complex, it means Sri Harmandar Sahib, it means Akal Tak, and every other Gurdwara. He did the planning of it. In his interview in 1984, in July, he very clearly said, I refuse to implement it because I have taken an oath not to fight the enemy of the nation, not to kill the citizens of my own country. And you know what was done to him? He was replaced and put on early retirement, and General A.S. Vedya was brought in, who signed the documents to implement this operation. And by the way, the commander-in-chief in India is a president, not the prime minister, and president signs were never taken in. So I'm just uh, giving you a one technical and legal thing which they never also did. They manipulated S.K. Sinha. And S.K. Sinha was asked, this is important why I gave that background. He was asked, what do you think of Pindrawale? You know what he said? He says, somebody comes to my house and I don't stand there to defend my house when they're gonna, they know in a planned way they will be demolished. In this case, this was not just individual's house, this was house of the six. Everything he did was exactly right. I would have done the same thing. This is from the mouth of Lieutenant General who did the planning of the attack on Sri Harmandar Sahib and the Kaltak Sahib complex. So let's understand that. And he was replaced by somebody named Vedya, who was brought in as a yes-man general. Even then, they did not follow all the laws in India. 
So that's important. That's the first name I wanted to bring up. Second, we have all his interviews. How many people have studied interviews of Pindravale? How many of have you have read the English translations of it? If you don't do that, we have audios, we have videos, we have transcripts translated in English. If you're not going to study any of that and not find what is wrong with what he's saying, what is the context of what he's saying, then these labels don't mean anything. I'm going to leave it at that for right now. You can study uh, what the sociologists in India have written about him, uh, like Vandana Shiva, who's still very active in her book, in The Violence of Green Revolution. She talks about the rise of Pindravale as being because he helped people. He took people away from drugs and alcohol and blue films, which is pornography. And women were liking him more because their husbands were getting better. And he was taking people. So when people say fundamentalists, what they really mean is that he was taking people back to the way of the gurus, which means you know live the life as uh, described and articulated by the gurus. And that's what Pindravale was doing. That said, one of the reasons I used the title for this uh, talk, I suggested that actually that we use the devoted and the worldly, which is very important because this is the first time I'm gonna bring in the Sikh narrative now. This is Guru Arjun's Shabbat. And Shabbat for us, for Sikhs, matters the most. Everything else is debatable for us. Shabbat can be interpreted. Shabbat can be sung. Shabbat can be understood in various ways, but we don't question the Shabbat. And this is what Guru Arjan Sahib says that Pagta te saisariya, jod kade na aya. The devoted and the worldly, they will never meet, which means they will never have alliance, which means they cannot come together. And he describes why they cannot. And this is very important because we are witnessing the same things. The generation which is post 84 is witnessing these things now in America right now. <laughs> and what and Guru Arjan Sahib says, why will not they come together? He says, because the Pagat is focused on such eternal, the truth. And the Sasari, the worldly, is focused on Kudbol, is focused on trash and the lies. So when you, you have to counter the lies, the trash, with the truth and the idea of eternalities. And this is why when uh, Pindravale is evoked, he's countering that. He's doing it through dialogue. He has never said that uh, with any meetings anyone wanted to have, even the current chief minister of Punjab is on record, the current one. He's on record, Captain Amrinder Singh, that I arranged a meeting between Rajiv Gandhi and Pindravale but Rajiv Gandhi didn't show up. Uh, Captain Amrinder Singh, whatever he might be, he's also the one who resigned in 1984. Now I'm invoking this right now in the context of Indrawale, that the people who are such based, truth-based or eternal ideas based, eternal eternality based, they will continue to have dialogue. They will continue to maintain within a Sikh tradition also to uphold uh, and protect the Gurdwaras. Uh, nobody has a right to go enter the Varsab complex. Nobody ever did, nobody ever can, and nobody ever will. And Pindravale is coming, Jarnal Singh Pindravale is coming from that vein. There is a Sasari and there is a Pagat. And Sasari, which means the worldly, continue to play games. And the Pagats, says and he is a Pagat. I mean, when people called him Sant, that's what it means. He exemplified truth. Sun's literal meaning is don't go by what you see sons around today. It means the one who exemplifies truth. People saw it. 
Indian Army officer saw it. The most decorated general India had produced at the time, General Major General Shabek Singh, also saw that, and he came to serve under him. IAS officers of India saw it. IFS officers of India saw it. IPS officers of India saw it. People in the villages saw that he spoke the truth. People in the cities saw that he spoke the truth. That is remarkable. So we, either we can go by the labeling of the autocratic government, or we can go by all this other data set available to us and do some self-study and inquiry. And that will really produce that he essentially did what the Sikh tradition is, both in terms of living the word of the guru to the ultimate testimony from Shahadat, which is what we call Shaheed's testimony onto truth. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, I really appreciate this, yeah, this context that is being provided. So maybe narrowing in on a lesser known uh, instance in during these attacks, um, Jarnail Singh, it said, performed an Ardas. So what is the significance uh, of Ardas more widely, but also what did it mean in that particular moment? Yeah, so actually the Ardas was done by all the prominent Sikhs of the time. This is very important. Ardas wasn't done by him. He was also part of the participants, just like in Gurdwaras when we do Ardas. There is one person leading the Ardas, but the Sangat, the congregation, the collective is participating in Ardas. And it is up to the individual members, those who are standing in Ardas, to see what their integrity of that Ardas is. So Ardas in Sikh tradition is something you do and you don't step back. It is it is a commitment. It's a firm commitment. It's a public commitment. It is not a personal commitment. So Sikhs have had that many times in their history. In the context of 1984, Pindrawale, Jarnal Singh Pindrawale did not go occupy, as people say, or the government version says, parts of a Kaltakt or parts of certain buildings. We can get into which buildings. That's not the case. He was actually invited to come in there by the Akali Dal's president of the time, Mr. Longowal. And they did Ardas together for Taram Yudh Morsha, which included many Sikh personalities of the time. The difference is he's a Sant. And I generally call him Jathedar, but today I'm focusing on the Sant. He's a Sant because he lived the truth. He exemplified the truth. He lived that Ardas. The Ardas was nobody will leave this Morsha until all demands of the Sikhs are met. And doesn't matter what comes doesn't matter what happens, doesn't matter what the government does. The demands were several, we can get into it. They included certain economic rights, they included certain political and certain things for Sikhs, certain things for Punjab. Uh, but he was invited to come there. He stayed there. He lived and died there in the truest sense of what the Sikh tradition did even in 18th century. Uh, for example, he needs to be seen in the line and I'll invoke one historical person here Bapa Gurbak Singh Nihang Shaheed, who stayed back to fight at the Sixth Battle of Abdali. Ahmad Shah Durrani is his historical name, but famously Abdali. He stayed back with his 30-odd uh, Sikhs to defend the Sahib complex. So we must understand what happens in the Sahib complex, why states attack it, and everything else is noise. We can create as much noise, and this is what happens today as well. It happened earlier. If you don't want to discuss the larger issue, 
you throw other things so people get busy talking about the smaller points. But yes, Ardas was done by the Sikh collective. Very few lived that Ardas. Hundred or so lived those Ardas. And he was one of them. He was a leader. And that's why I call him Jathedar Jarnal Singh Pindrawale. Pindrawale just means he's from Pindra Jatha. Pindra is a place. In this case, uh, there were factions of Taksal, and this faction belonged to the Pindra Jatha. And Jarnal is his name. You know, even the name tells you something. It means general. You know, <laughs> the when generals of the Indian army, the ones, and this is very important, and let me bring this up, because earlier I said, you know, people who served India, you know, Shavek Singh is also misunderstood. He needs to be understood in this context. He even cut his hair to fight the Pakistanis, to defeat them, because he was undercover. And he, he talked about this. And he says, I did anything and everything. You know, he became S big, B-A-I-G-H. He became, uh, basically that's what you do, you know, in certain uh, operations because he was operational. And by the way, he's also the one, he taught at the elite academy, military academy in India, where he actually trained General Barar. Think about this for a second. Person who goes on from serving in the British army to the independent India's army, fighting the Chinese, fighting the Pakistanis, creating incredible freedoms for Bangladeshis, training somebody who enters the Warsaw Conquest Barar, even that person, what we don't know about him is, he says between 76 and 84, he had eight years to go and he went and he decided, and there's an interview of him, his brother is vouching for this, his brother is still alive. He says, you know, after 76, when he was court-martialed because of political games India wanted to play, they didn't want to make him the full general at the time. He says, I went to Amritsar and I saw who is going to deliver for the six. He says, they were all liars, but a bande vich damasi, a bande vich jorsi, and he was referring to Jarnail Singh Pindrawale. So this is the context we have to understand why people chose to believe in him because he exemplified truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think we've done, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, again, I know I'm, yeah, saying this over and over again, but I really am appreciating this context and this nuance that's being provided. And I think, yeah, we have delved into the why, but so sorry, just to be mindful of time, perhaps we could cover a little bit of the what and the how it occurred, um, especially this first week of June before we start taking questions from the audience. Sure, I think the, the larger thing to understand, and we can get into if there are questions on the specifics, of that this was no ordinary stuff. First thing to understand here is when you are using 150,000 troops, and at that time India is the fourth largest standing army in the world, and you are directing this thing from Chandi Mandir, which is right outside Chandigarh, and 150,000 troops are indirectly involved, 70,000 are directly involved, you use chemical warfare, you use tanks, you have two models you have already developed in the Dune Valley and the Sarvista and one of the Jamna beds. You have done all those preparations. You cannot be telling me that you did all this so you can take care of quote unquote terrorists in the Warsaw complex. And by the way, when the training started, there was no such occupation, including governments. This is government's word, occupation of Akaltak. So all this is just hogwash. 
So what is really going on? And this is not just happening in Amritsar. This is not just happening in Darbar Sahib complex. This is happening throughout Punjab. First report said 35 plus Gurdwaras in Punjab were attacked. The last count is 78 Gurdwaras in Punjab were attacked. Every major Gurdwara. So what is happening here? This was, as Joyce Pettigrew put it, this was not to uh, put down any political movement or a leader. This was attack on the Sikh nation. Just like right after Banda Singh Bahadur leaves this earth, there's a declaration that no Sikh will be left alive. Similar declarations were taking place in India in 84 when they said no Amritari Sikh should be uh, left alone or he should be reported or she should be reported. Similar things are happening through these tactics. So the idea is when you go there on a martyrdom day, June 3rd, you know, we are talking right now, what's the time, 9.04 here? About two and a half hours before now, 4 a.m. on June 4th, which is roughly the time in Punjab right now, two and a half hours into it. This is when they really started this operation. They started bullet firing much earlier. I happened to be near that complex on May 28th and 29th. We were going into Pakistan as yatris. Uh, entry was being allowed, people were being checked, but Punjab got sealed. On, uh, on June 3rd, I heard all this at Nankana Saab. I happened to be Nankana Saab. On June 6th, we found out in Lahore at Punjab, at uh, Gurdwara's uh, of Gurwarjan Saab, Shahada Jathe Oisi, Dera Saab, that what India was doing to six. And now we know this very clearly. They used all these troops, they sealed Punjab, and their idea was to attack these major Gurdwara, 78 of them, demolish this complex like other governments have done, desecrate it, and get rid of anything and everything, whether it's artifacts, whether it's potis or manuscripts, or Tosha Khanna, or uh, memories of the gurus, memories on the walls of our paintings, uh, our miniatures, you name it, anything and everything was under attack. It was the red waters of Amritsar's is how I like to call it. Everything was made red. You know, they have their white lies and their red lies, but they're physically making everything red. And they did this to break the back of the six. Now I say this, this is not my word. CBC radio had an interview in Toronto and this is what Indian government official from the embassy said this, that this is, we have broken their backs in India. Now we will break their backs everywhere else. Not my words, emissary of Indian government from Indian embassy in Canada their representative said this. So this is what was happening in June 84. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think to, yes. So to bring this conversation um, to something that I'm interested in is uh, when I often see Sikh history, it's very dominated by male voices. So I think there are many important stories of women that are missing. Mm -hmm. Um, so what are these stories that we should be telling? What roles, both known and unknown, did women play during these events? So uh, the, the events, and I understand your question, and I value this question. What we must also understand is many a time the stories are not told. Many a times the stories are lost also. But mm -hmm. there is one story, just like we only discussed Pindravale and I mentioned Shabeg Singh. Let's bring one woman, Pritam Kaur. You know, she still talks about it. 
you know, when Lasarbat Khalsa happened, she was the only sane voice speaking there. You know, what happens, Pindrawale's PA and PA's wife and children, what happens to them is to be talked about as well. You know, when we talk about Banda Singh Bahadur, we say that 780 plus men or six, mostly men at the time because government was capturing men, uh, none of them refused to identify with him. Pindrawale has similar stories. People who are his part of his thinking, part of his uh, sick men and women, mostly men, few women who are part of this, they all identified with him. They don't want to leave. They want to embrace Shahadat with him. And those included women, few, but they did. Few who tells the story, who tell the story afterwards. So women voices, I would say we have our work cut out, but I think that's a separate conversation. We need to record those voices. We need to amplify those voices, but also understand that most of the participation because of the circumstances you are in, sometimes because of the religious practices of some of these groups and subgroups, that women role is not of equal partnership. That is a fact. It is not either being allowed by circumstances or by six who are participating. But what is uncontestable is women do play a role, women did play a role, and we need to assure that whether 100 years ago when Balbir Singh, Balbir Kaur wanted to play that role, she was allowed eventually. And in 80s and in 90s, these roles have been played. And I think we will see many more of these roles when we start to distinguish and keep our personal religious Sikh practice on the side and look at this as a collective Ardas, which includes women as well. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, um, so you spoke of um, t keeping these stories alive, tell, sorry, telling these stories, uh, noting them down, keeping them alive somehow. Um, but I think sometimes this, this process can be dangerous in like the contemporary moment that we are in. So maybe to take it more, like more into a contemporary context, uh, perhaps we can discuss what this event looks like or how this event has impacted us 36 years after the fact or after its occurrence. So the even today, like the blocking of hashtag sick on Instagram and Facebook, like what does this mean? What limitations are being put on six, both in the diaspora and at home in Punjab? So let's put it first, what were the limitations in 84? And now we will come to 2020 limitations because limitations are always there. Question is, what do you do given those limitations? So in 84, everything was sealed, right? Even then, how did the stories come out? Whatever we might think of certain officials or certain politicians, when they, when they did go to Darbar Sahib, few days later, they come out and they write about it and they talk about it. And this is what gets captured by some of the international media. That included Zell Singh, that included, although uh, Sahib Singh at the time gave some wrong statements, Yani, uh, Kripal Singh as well, but most of those statements were accurate and we did find out what happened that day. When the photographers like Danish took those pictures, we have those now available because he made them available. Some of the pictures were taken by army, they were stolen or smuggled, and now we have those available. 
there is always going to be limitation in today's technology and i'll get into that there are different levels of limitations but one we must understand that when this attack happened every sikh every sikh denounced it without an exception doesn't matter whether he or she served for in the government of india as a politician as a nominated individual as an elected individuals people who had their medals people like khushwan singh and ganda singh returned their medals people like who were serving uh, in foreign services leaving those services uh, every kind of sick there was no sick who stood by mrs gandhi's actions because it was an autocratic action okay so that's one thing to understand and it because of some of these people in their own ways they documented it they vocalized it some of the attention of international media did go that way to the level where the only global leader in the world who denounced this was pope john paul ii so first thing i want to say is this so do not discount anyone regardless of what else they do in their lives second is those who were in punjab because of them because of their families because of their associations now we have a larger sikh narrative the first part gave us some hints that this is akin to a holocaust when people say this is akin to the manipulations and the genocides the indians who wrote this indians who served the india when they talked about it we found out little bit but when punjab sikhs talked about it when punjab sikhs documented it when punjab sikhs created their oral histories without the sophisticated gadgets of today by telling their families by participating in movements by uh, seeking political asylums by winning elections in india this is how we developed the sikh narrative the larger data so those things were limited and they had their own limitations in 80s including in 84 but they still did it so 2020 is here we have our own limitations we are tracked you know social media is tracked it is not a coincidence that the word hashtag although now uh, put back by instagram and facebook but after erasing and censoring anything which was related to 1984 we need to ask this question why is this happening who is requesting this so limitations will always be there limitations were there several years ago if i if i bring in uh, indian context now there are so many limitations there but people are speaking out against the similar autocratic behavior in india and in america if i can take that example uh, on the bush era there were similar measures or people spoke out there was a campus watch list watch list of professors who talked against the government today we see much worse things happening but people still do their job this is where pagta te sasaria needs to be understood now from a sick angle i would say you know people who used to talk about 84 i remember those days you know i was less than 12 when june 84 happened and i remember coming to america in 86 and i remember not talking much for few years and i remember even in gurdwaras everyone looked at you funny depending on who it was when you don't talk about 84 even 5 years ago it was very difficult to talk about 84 because six themselves do not understand the sikh narrative and they will look at you funny and they will talk funny to you but i think those that time has changed that time that has changed because the diaspora sikhs 
and Punjab Sikhs who kept alive this narrative at the heavy cost of being labeled terrorist or sympathizers of X, Y, and Z, you fill in the blank, but the narrative survived and that is a larger narrative now. Everyone knows this. Even the MPs in the upper parliament, upper house of Indian parliaments for last five years have been saying, why is there no independent inquiry in India on this? Even till date, there is no independent inquiry. What do they have to hide? Six have nothing to hide. They have talked about who were the militants, who were the survivors, what got missed, what happened where. Six haven't been hiding. We don't apologize about anything we do. If anyone is hiding anything, it is the government of India. It is army not declassifying the whole operational details, although they have leaked, including in their defense reviews, that this operation was a complete failure. So limitations are always there, but you work, you create alliances, you create allyship, you don't create new untouchable class and six by saying this person works for the government, Indian government, or this person works for Congress, you stop doing that. You find people, you prick their consciousness, you find the best in them, and you try to find more informations so the inquiries of this kind can happen. And by the way, this is where UK and US comes in. UK government is party, uh, party to what happened in June 84, and I'm gonna bring USA to it as well. Because the operation had the night goggles at the time. The only organization in the world who had the night goggles at the time in 84 was CIA. And I actually met a gentleman, owner of a restaurant in UK, who facilitated that conversation to bring those goggles to India. So, Look, guys, governments work in their own ways. They look at their economics. They look at their games nations play in terms of geopolitical realities. Those limitations will always be there. But let's look for individuals, even today, who will help us establish the truth, who will help us understand the Sikh narratives, who will so we can present not just to Sikhs, but also to 1.2 billion people in India, where the propaganda is still very heavy, that what really happened in 84, how Sikhs have nothing against India, Sikhs have nothing against the Hindus or the majority populations, but we definitely have many things against autocratic behaviors, autocratic leaders, people who believe in violating international laws, Indian laws, as well as riparian laws, which are affecting Sikhs in Punjab. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for bringing this conversation and this nuance to understanding the events of June 1984. I, I'm going to move on down to questions from um, the audience. We do have some questions that circulate around Khalistan. So we have one that is, why do so many Sikh organizations erase Khalistan from 1984? But kind of, yeah, in conjunction with that, we also have uh, what do you make of diaspora groups such as, and they're listed, um, in their attempts to create an independent Sikh state? Yeah, I think we need to, again, understand it at a nuanced level. There is no denying that there was a demand of Khalistan. There is no de denying that Khalistan was invoked in June 84. Uh, Pindrawale is on the record saying it very clearly. That's one reference that we don't ask for it, but we are not going to refuse it if we are given that. And we are not going to make the 1947 mistake. Second incident where it is invoked in June 84's context, because that's what we are discussing today, is when he says, 
if the army enters the Sab complex, it will be the it will lay the foundation stone for Khalistan. And that we do see. If you look at the movement between 84 and 91, there is there are several things which happen, including uh, a militancy movement uh, by several subgroups within Punjab, supported by a large portion of the Sikh community. And I say large portion because these subgroups win the elections in Punjab. Of the 13 MPs who won election in late 80s, nine of them were Khalistanis. This is very important to understand when people say, well, this was just a militancy issue. No, it is not. It was also an electoral democratic way of also selecting who people of Punjab voted into power as well. So there was a movement for Khalistan. That movement in various ways through infiltrations, but not having certain envisionings, and not having certain things clear, having serious human rights violations. You know, there are multiple reasons and that's not the topic I wanna to get into, but June 84 is related to Khalistan. Yes, there was a movement for it. And when people want to work towards it, just like in each country, there are political ideologies. Six also have different political ideologies. You know, if you do not subscribe to independent uh, creation of Khalistan, that's fine. And I think both sides need to understand that. There are people who subscribe to it. There are people who don't subscribe to it. In 80s, a large portion of Sikhs subscribe to it through electoral politics as well. Today, we don't know where all these things are, uh, but there is no denial that Khalistan is attached to June 84. What is Khalistan's future? What is Khalistan's relevance? What is Khalistan's plan? I think that's a separate discussion altogether, but no one can deny that it is attached to June 84. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so speaking a little more to the diaspora, we have a question from Harman. Um, can you talk more about the impacts post-84 with fake encounters, increased flow of drugs and alcohol in Punjab, and any steps to reconcile this impact for the future generations? I, yeah, I assume like reparations in any form would also fall into this category. Well, so... You know, this is where I think it's a much larger question and I think the focus is shifting to post-84 stuff. So I'll have a short answer on this. And the answer is, this is where our work is cut out within the community. You cannot expect the state to do this. Although state ran its own programs, I went to those to see what they were doing. I was involved in one of the programs for five years in Punjab, which had to do with the rehabilitation of indirect victims of torture. But I can tell you our work is seriously cut out here what we are seeing 36 years later is partly due to this whole struggle of memory versus trauma and state's design to create sort of like, sort of. I don't like to find, you know, say it's exactly like that because circumstances are different, but something like what has happened with the First Nations in America. So when you see their levels of consumption of drugs and alcohol, we see similar high levels to what has happened in Punjab as well. But that is much more complex topic. Punjab has more than 800 gangsters as of last year's data who are controlled by the political parties in Punjab. They have a free flow of weapons and we need to study that more to answer some of these questions as well. But there is no denying that the trauma of 84 is on us just like the 47s. And I think 
we need to start talking about 84 much more in an open and uh, uh, patient way is what I would say, that there are people who have witnessed many things mm -hmm. and if they want to fight for certain things, at least understand them and listen to them. You don't have to agree or endorse it. Similarly, those who chose to leave the struggles, there are several who have left as well because of their own traumas within the families as well. We must understand that as well. But the unquestionable thing here is that state had a particular design, that state and its agencies implemented it, and the residues of those are still seen in varieties of ways. And it all started with the attack. This was a first attack in 20th century, third Kalukara, we call it, which means it happened twice at this level in 18th century. And then roughly after 225 year gap, it happened again in the late 20th century. So it's going to have its effects on our psyche quite a bit. And these effects, um, we will, it, it takes a couple of generations if we start addressing it. And this is where I want to bring in Sikhi a little bit. When this happened, the Kalukaras happened in 18th century, we dealt with them very quickly because we were Shabad oriented. Our leadership was Shabad oriented. We believed in Bani. We studied it and we implemented it and we lived it. We very quickly, we dealt with it. The mothers who had their kids beheaded in mass in hundreds of them, or first Kalukara, whether it was the Lakpat Rai or the Jaspat Rai's, or whether it was the Mir Mannus of the world, we dealt with it very quickly and we very successfully created the first independent Punjab ever after 700 years. And what I want to bring here is how did Jassa Singh Aluwalia do this? He lived through the two Kalukaras. Um, so again, in relation to these events in particular, um, and I guess centering the Ardas again, uh, Abhinashke asks, what was the goal of the Ardas done by the EE4 Sangat? How can we as Sikhs living in the 21st century continue to follow through with the goals of that Ardas, i.e. passing a Nandpur Sahib resolution? Yeah, I think there is a lot of misinformation about the purposes of Ardas. And first thing I would say is the goal of Ardas was the Ramyud Morsha. There were particular demands. And I encourage everyone to go read up on those demands. And the word morcha needs to be understand, understood here. Each morcha in Sikh tradition had a particular end they were after. And what has happened in 20th century is that Sikhs and their movement started many morchas, but we actually never met those end goals and the morchas got demolished or ended, including in earlier 20th century. So I'm gonna leave it at that. But Ardas, basically, we need to do our own Ardas. So this is one place I would invoke that we cannot go work on the missions of the earlier generations. We live with their spirit. They operated in a particular cultural milieu, in a particular political reality. And what we need to do is, what is your Ardas? What is our collective Ardas is what we need to first develop. We have not even developed a deliberation method to do even proper Ardas. So what I would say is Anandpur Sahib resolution was drafted in 70s. It was a vision which was developed in the circumstances between 60s and 70s. What Sikhs were saying to make India a federal structure, 
is a is a demand which Tamil Nadu did 20 years, 30 years ago, a whole study on, and now the leftists of India and some centrists of India are accepting is a vision for India. So we were 50 years ahead. Today we need to do the same thing. We need to actually not go back. Jassa Singh Aluwalia did not say, let's develop what Banda Singh Bahadur did. He said, let's learn from Banda Singh Bahadur and Nawab Kapoor Singh, and let us do what we need to do next. So similarly, what 70s Anandpur Sahib resolution did, 80s uh, Khalistan declaration did, 90s Amritsar Elanama did, since 90s we have been sitting and we are not deliberating what is the right thing for us to do at this moment in our history, at this moment of the realities we are in for our communities. So if we are interested in that, it requires serious deliberation. It requires very genuine deliberation, which is based on Shabbat. It, it requires us to become truth exemplars. And in those realities, we should then carve out, this is what a community should do. I think there was a revival to do Sarbat Khalsa so we can actually have those conversations. As you know, those haven't been working out because they are not open conversations. They are not deliberative conversations. So your ardas, my ardas can be anything you want. Your organizations or your Chathe Bandi's ardas can be whatever you would like. The collective ardas of the six, it requires due deliberation and genuine effort. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, okay. So another question that we get is, got is from Jagjot Singh. Um, they say a name popped up in every file of 84, i.e. people who were involved in the attacks. So Jagdish Titler and but there is no for against him. But in an interview, he said that he killed people in Delhi. So he was involved in the attack. And if yes, why was he not punished? So I think we are mixing the June and the November here. I would say we need to look into our data a little bit more carefully. Jagdish Titler is accused for the second quote-unquote Operation Shanti, which was pre-porn after Mrs. Gandhi was assassinated. Uh, he was involved in the uh, Delhi pogroms or Delhi genocides. Uh, actually, the genocides happened all over India outside of Punjab, but Delhi was one of the worst areas. So I think there is some disconnect there, but I'll take it in spirit. If we have identified people, we know who did it. Well, there are legal means to do certain things and those people are pursuing it. There are sick militancy means of pursuing it and they also did it. You know, so we must recognize that within June 84, within two years of that, uh, the general I mentioned, the prime minister, and few other people, uh, certain six decided in their resistance in the ideas of Guru Gobind Singh's dictum, they decided that enough is enough and we are going to do something about it, and they did it, including those who served Mrs. Gandhi directly as her bodyguards. So my point is, Certain things happen through legal means, certain thing happens by uh, military means, certain things happen by forgiveness, certain things happen by saying, you know what, they were just following orders. By, uh, this is where redress and reparation comes in. This is where restorative justice comes in. We need our own community members trained in these things so we can nuance these things for ourselves. This is how Sikhs in 18th century did it. They took care of business, they moved on, 
because they were connected with the Shabbat, they practiced Nirpa Nirvair, their vocabulary mattered. They did not cuss people out. They took care of them wherever they needed to, including in the battlefield. So what I'm saying is, if you're looking for justice, justice operates at multiple levels. We live in 21st century phenomena. We must understand certain 21st century systems and people who are pursuing those systems, either you can support them directly or indirectly, or you can start another way to create another form of justice. And one of them we talked about earlier is doing justice to our memory and trauma. Mm -hmm, definitely. So sorry, but let's um, circulate back to the question that we were covering before you got cut out, as it seems like, yeah, it was cut out for most people. Um, so kind of circling back to what we were discussing there, Navdeep Gay says, um, sorry, Gitu says, before the technical interruption, Mr. Harinder Singh was telling us how fast we have recovered from the first two Kalugaras. Mm. Why is it taking more than 36 years to recover from the third? Could you please explain? Yes, thank you for asking that again. I think this, this is the instruction moment. And I sort of alluded to it that in 84, we actually did recover fairly quickly, but after there was a massive human rights violations and extrajudicial killings unleashed in Punjab, including in the words of former DGP of Punjab, Julio Rivero, he wrote a book called Bullet for Bullet. And he's clearly said there that we were not fighting, uh, uh, we were creating basically uh, blames on the Sikhs and Sikh militancies, those who supported Khalistans by killing, including Hindus, uh, to give them bad names. But anyway, that's a separate conversation. I'm saying there was a bit of a quick recovery in 80s as well, but then there was a massive killings, uh, massive operations by the governments. In 18th century, we were able to do that. You, although at that time, there's a massive killing as well, because I feel as a community, we actually believed in Akal Takht. We believed in our leadership because our leadership was also truth exemplars. Uh, we are facing this crisis for almost two plus decades now that we do not have the leadership of that metal which is based off Shabbat. Jassa Singh Aluwalia only did two things. The one who actually delivered freedom for Punjab after 700 years of slavery. He studied Bani, he became one with Bani, one with Shabbat. Nawab Kapoor Singh's training was that to him. And second training was that he knew the ways of the world, how to fight the battle at the time, how to keep strong Sikhs at bay, those who disagreed with certain things, and also keep the strong Sikhs with him when they needed to go take care of business as well. So creating these strategic alliances based on the Gurmat ideas of Sikh principles I think we are seriously missing on both fronts again. I think earlier generation in the 80s did the best they could. Our work is cut out. I think we are beginning to develop those uh, external strengths, the strategies, but I think our internal strength is severely lacking. Uh, and I think there's an instruction in today's hukum. Uh, when I read the hukum this morning from Sri Harmandar Saab, it said towards the end that do you even know what to write? How are you going to write the such? And that requires us, what ink needs to be used? What is your ink for? What is your paper? And where is the vichar? The word uses vichar and where is the reflection? 
I think those are the things which comes in through the Shabbat for us. So 18th century, we'll survive the two Kallukaras. Then we actually thrived, we captured Lahore, we captured whole of Punjab, and then Ranjit Singh came in because even when they were removed from Sikhi in certain personal practices, they were not removed from Sikhi from a Shabbat understanding of things. And this is where I think the biggest challenge is we do not invoke Shabbat to develop solutions. We are only invoking Shabbat to do Samagams and Tirtans and Simrans, which is fine. That gives us a personal strength, but we must invoke Shabbat to carve out reflective and strategic solutions for what the Sikh world needs within Punjab, as well as whichever other countries we are living in now, in order to address, including with the governments of the time, including in America, in Canada, in UK, because all of this comes into play when Sikhs are highlighted in those countries. And now it's coming into play in the social media, as we discussed earlier. So Shabbat-based leadership, Shabbat-based strategy, that's the work which is really needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this centrality or, cent or centralizing of Shabbat, I think it's important to acknowledge um, and understand. Um, a question that we have also gotten is, could you speak to the fact that there was supposed to be a stoppage of Punjabi grain to the rest of India on the day of the attack? <laughs> so there are several things. So that uh, Morcha I was talking about, it had to do with certain labor rights as well. I think I'm going to recommend uh, that we need to understand, yes, India, uh, Punjab feeds India. Uh, even, even now with all these things, you know, they used to say two thirds of India is fed by uh, Punjab. And not just that, I actually alluded to it earlier that it was the Sikhs who were in the armies which were maintaining the sovereignty of India. So yes, there were certain threats possibly, and yes, there have been statements made, uh, let's cut up the water supply, because they are looting the electricity and water of Punjab, violating Indian laws and international riparian laws. What really needs to be addressed here is that the, the way they decide how much the grain will be sold in the mandis is the issue, because this is how they were hurting the Punjab's farmer. Anyway, what was happening in those demands is that the game is completely changed now, guys. You know, the way agriculture, and the industrial complexes and the economic zones which have been developed in Haryana and in certain places in southern India, the game has completely been changed. You cannot rely. Those are the data points on why we were giving the fight at the time. And this is what I was referring to earlier. We need to understand the game today. You know, where is the economic might? Where is the physical, uh, the monetary, as well as the uh, power? You know, this idea of electoral power and the soft power, which is the influence, where does that lie today? And based on those, we need to come up with the today's solutions. Back then, yes, grain, water, uh, serving in the army, uh, proportion to the population, you know, discrimination in armed forces, discrimination in appointments, those were the big issues. Part of those are still issues, but now we have much larger issues such as actual compromise on the Sikh sovereignty, even at a spiritual level, is going on. 
you know, when we are being clubbed as a dharmic religion by saying that you don't even have your own identities, you are part of the larger framework. So the ideology of earlier is autocratic, is today is also operating as autocratic, but the issues are a little bit different and the game is a little bit different. We need to understand both of those from a Sikh perspective and come up with reasonable solutions for different veins of Sikhs. And that's something reasonable for different veins because one solution doesn't work for all Sikhs. In 18th century, it did. Today, it will do again if we had free Akalta, if we had independent Akalta. We don't. In the absence of that, let's create uh, and work towards if you're interested in solutions which will work for particular veins of Sikhs. So at least we achieve those successes. Mm -hmm. So perhaps you've kind of already touched upon this, but a question that has come up a couple of times is could you link the water rights movement to how it escalated in the late 70s and how it all turned into a separatist movement and how it became political? Yeah, I, you know, um, it has to do with the, the natural or international conventions as well as legal conventions within India. Wherever the water flow, if I oversimplify it, it basically means this. Wherever the water is flowing from, the first rights to that water are to the people who are next to that water, the flowing rivers in this case of Punjab. What was happening was uh, canals were built to take the water out of Punjab. That water was used to uh, create electricity, which Punjab had to buy at a much higher rate. So there are basically policies, I would say, created to bankrupt Punjab of its natural resources, and then have Punjab buy those resources back in form of electricity, in this case, uh, at a much higher rate. So it's like a double whammy going on. Essentially what it means is, that what you now hear about the cancer trains in Punjab, when you hear about that the water level in Punjab is dangerous in 80% of the Punjab, it's happening because of the bankruptcy which has continued of the natural resources, including aggregarian policies and the which seeds are being used since 1960s. So that part they've already done. Now we are dealing with a next level of um, sort of subjugations by controlling uh, economics of it and controlling the narratives from religious and other and, and uh, drugs and other uh, narratives as well, which are going on. So I would say we need to study those more now. But if you are interested in this, uh, Joyce Pettigrew's perspective is primarily based on the economic issues of Punjab. So I recommend Dr. Pettigrew's book, The Sixth of Punjab, which in detail covers this phenomena of economics of Punjab and how that became uh, laced with Sikh religious sentiments and which then walked into the Sikh militancy movement. Mm -hmm. So just to be mindful of time, I'm gonna, this will be our last question, but something that is coming up um, in multiple different ways in the chat is the role that the youth play. So the contemporary, the now, the youth. Um, and I think it's really important here to also acknowledge the contemporary global moment that we find ourselves in. So how does this sick history of state oppression and police brutality play into the responsibility both in the safety context, but also um, how we stand in solidarity with the Black community and what is occurring globally? Yeah, so I think this is, this is really 
this is entirely up to the audience. But here are a few things to consider. Uh, just like we become passionate about, and at some point unapologetic about civil rights issues like Black Lives Matter today in America, and with a global support where people in New Zealand are doing hakas to support it, we need to have similar level of unapologetic support for Sikh rights. And I think we need to become comfortable with that. We don't need to apologize for fighting for Sikh rights. There are people in diaspora and in India, outside of Punjab, who completely identified with other people's rights, downtrodden rights, and we are supposed to as Sikhs. Please don't misunderstand me. But we cannot just keep feeding langars to people. You know, langar is an outcome of our living. It's an outcome of our connection with the Shabbat. And part of that outcome is also to fight for people's right. You know, so the, the youths today, whether you serve Khalsa Aid or through other organizations, civil rights, food rights, relief, AIDS, build alliances and allyship within the community for those who are fighting for civil rights, human rights, and protecting the memories of the militancy movement as well. That's one thing we can do. Mm -hmm. Second thing we can do is we must understand that just like there is a modern U.S. state, although with an anomaly with this president, there is a modern Indian state. Just like there's a modern U.K. So, you know, every there's a modern nation states now. In these modern nation states, we uh, what is our real ask? We need to go develop those answers. You know, every movement at the end of the day, including what happened in June 84, including with all the negotiations and failed negotiations and retrials and negotiations, then violations, and then more renegotiations, eventually what is going on? At some point, you must be so clear in what demand do you have and what can be met at this moment in time. You're always pushing the envelope. I think we need to develop those systems better. I think youth is, uh, always is, people below the age of 25, I'm much older, so all I can do is share these ideas with you and my experience, and my experience and idea is essentially that our ideas are not baked. We really need to bake those ideas. We need to build allyship within the community. We need to become unapologetic within the community. We need to create very discerning intellect, akal latif in the words of Gurbani, where we are able to, in the words of Gurbani, in our love-based justice, we are able to pursue our own rights while we defend other people's rights. So I think that's where the work is. Right now, uh, we do not defend enough in our own community. And we have created new untouchability class, is what I like to call it now, within the community. There is a different, you know, other six become Certain portion of six become untouchable to us, the ones we don't like, or based on what they what their caste is, based on what their political ideology is, based on what their social strata is. This is the new caste system for us. We need to address this. I think youth can address this. We need to not play that game, which was the game of 80s or 90s. We don't need to play the games, which is a dirty game of Punjab caste politics or Indian caste politics. We don't need to play the jut or the non-jut politics. 
they're all bringing that into June 84 as well, by the way. Be very cognizant of that. They did this to Banda Singh Bahadur. They did that to the gurus. We must understand that our alliances of pagats and our chal is nirali. And we are the truth exemplars. So let's go build internal strength through Shabbat for that truth exemplification. And then allyship with other six, even the ones we disagree with, for our particular goals, we need to develop those allyships within the community. And then externally, let's develop some skill sets and strategic thinkings in the way the world works today, whether it's in America or in Canada or in India, and then figuring out how to utilize those skill sets, those relationships to deliver the best outcome for 2021. That's how we need to start thinking. Thank you, Harinder Singh, for taking the time today to participate in this conversation. Um, and apologies to those whose questions were not addressed due to time constraints. Personally, um, I found this conversation to be very spirited uh, and very nuanced. And I think that words get tossed around a lot, especially in the academy, but I think that is such an apt word for what uh, I have gained from this conversation. Uh, and I'm sure that questions will continue to flow. They are still flowing. Um, and I'm sure new questions will come up. So I'd like to take this time to invite anyone who does feel comfortable uh, and please sharing these questions with me. Um, I am at community at sikri.org. So it's community at sikri, S-I-K-H-R-I.org. And I can marinate on these questions uh, and these, these questions that we want answered and we can tailor our coming webinars to answer uh, these questions. Uh, today's live course will be ending now. Bye, Rujika Khalsa. Bye, oh, Rujika. You are listening to Sick Cast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.